Are you looking for a new neighborhood to live in? Then come on down to Redlining Realty, sanctioned by the U.S. government. There's depressed infrastructure, underfunded schools, no white people. They're all in the suburbs. Heck, we'll even throw in free shoes. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Call Redlining Realty today, and we'll get you a house built on the most American foundation of all, racism. Hey, hey, it's your girl KV, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hood Health Report. Make sure you follow the show pages on Twitter, Hood Health Pod, on Instagram and Facebook, Hood Health Report. So this week will be um, the part two from the last episode. The last episode was on homelessness. This week we'll talk about redlining and affordable housing and just all of the ways that the government just tries to keep black people, minorities, disabled persons from having access to affordable housing. First, I want to start with some definitions. Wikipedia defines redlining as the systematic denial of various services by federal government agencies, local governments, as well as the private sector to residents of specific, most notably black neighborhoods or communities, either directly or through the selective raising of prices. Dictionary.com defines it as to refuse a loan or insurance to someone because they live in an area deemed to be poor financial risk. And although redlining was banned over 50 years ago, we still see modern day practices where people are put out of their homes or being displaced. Also banks, you know, Wells Fargo got in trouble for it, a few banks got in trouble for it, where they just flat out were either denying loans or giving them twice as much interest on their loans so that it will be harder for people to obtain home ownership for black people to obtain home ownership so first up we're gonna get into basically a history lesson an entire manhattan village owned by black people was destroyed to build central park Seneca Village began in 1825 and eventually spanned from 82nd Street to 89th Street along what is now the western edge of the Central Park. By the time it was finally raised in 1857, it had become a refuge for African Americans. Though most were nominally free, the last slave wasn't emancipated until 1827. Life was far from pleasant. The population of African Americans living in New York City tripled between abolition and complete emancipation and the migrants were derided in the press. Mordecai Noah, founder of the New York Enquirer, was especially well known for his attacks on African Americans, fuming at one point that the free Negroes of this city are a nuisance incomparably greater than a million slaves. Most landowners at the time refused to sell to African Americans. A white couple who lived in what was then a distant northern outpost of Manhattan was an exception, subdividing and selling off their land first to Epiphany Davis and Andrew Williams, two prominent members of the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, and then to the AME Zion Church. More members of the African Society, whose purpose was in part to build black communities, followed suit and purchased land as well. Slowly, houses were built 
Some of them were rather grand two-story affairs with barns and stables, and some were modest shacks. The area was eventually anchored by three churches and a school. Owning land in Seneca Village meant more than finding a refuge from the slums and violence of Manhattan proper. Buying property meant voting rights, at least for men, as laws in New York at the time required that all voters own at least $250 worth of real estate. Seneca Village probably had a more radical purpose too, as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Prominent abolitionists such as Albro Lyons, later recognized as a conductor on the railroad, owned land and lived there. In fact, the African society so instrumental in founding the village was reputed to have hidden basement for hiding runaway slaves. And the name of the village itself may have come from a philosophy tract called Seneca's Morals, a book that was popular with abolitionist activists. As Seneca Village was building up, however, support for the Central Park grew, driven by some of the same pressures that created the African-American enclave. The tip of the island of Manhattan was overflowing with people. The slums were spilling over as more and more immigrants arrived, especially after the Irish potato famine started in 1845. None of these conditions appealed to well-off New Yorkers who had already started migrating further uptown or out of town by the 1840s. Already, the Lennox family and other wealthy New Yorkers owned swaths of land in the vicinity of the proposed park. Real estate developers easily foresaw the demand for an exclusive neighborhood bordering parklands. More than three-fourths of the children who lived in Seneca Village attended Colored School No. 3 in the church basement. Half of the African Americans who lived there owned their own property, a rate five times higher than the city average. And while the village remained mostly black, immigrant whites had started to live in the area as well. They shared resources ranging from a church, All Angels Episcopal, to a midwife, an Irish immigrant who served the entire town. But in 1857, it was all torn down. Even as the church was being built on 86th Street, then painstakingly painted white, the original settlers fought for their lands in court. Andrew Williams was paid nearly what his land was worth after filing an affidavit with the state Supreme Court. Epiphany Davis was not as fortunate, losing hundreds of dollars. By 1871, Seneca Village had largely been forgotten. That year, the New York Herald reported that laborers created a new entrance to the park at 85th Street and 8th Avenue had discovered a coffin, enclosing the body of a Negro, decomposed beyond recognition. The discovery was a mystery, the paper reported, because these lands were dug up five years ago when the trees were planted there and no such coffins were there at the time. That's unlikely as the site was a graveyard of the AME Zion Church. Researchers from Columbia CUNY, the New York Historical Society, have been working on excavating the site at Seneca Village since the early 2000s. The work has been slow, with excavations starting in 2011. The only official artifact that remains intact on the site is a commemorative plaque dedicated in 2001 to the Lost Village. So I'm sure this comes as no surprise, but 
since we were free and able to buy our own land, the government and white people have been trying to keep us out of certain areas and enclosed in the worst parts of town. As we try and uh, recover home ownership rates from the last uh, recession, let's take a look at how race can severely restrict the upward economic mobility of African Americans. Since at least the 1940s, home ownership has been seen as a, a cornerstone of the American dream. It provides a sense of security, but it also builds wealth in the form of equity in your home. Now, through the mid-20th century, local governments and financial institutions used a practice known as redlining. They would literally draw red lines around black neighborhoods, leading to fewer municipal services, lower home values in those areas. But that was supposed to have ended. Well, a study from the Brookings Institution found that neighborhoods that are at least 50% black have an average, an average of 23% lower home values. This is serious. The, this devaluation, by the way, just to give you a bit about how this is done, it's measured against comparable neighborhoods, looking at absolute home price differences in neighborhoods with at least 50% black populations versus neighborhoods that have fewer than 1% black residents. It also looks at structural characteristics, the year the home was built, square footage, number of rooms. It's trying to make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. And it looks at neighborhood amenities, the physical landscape, the economic status, the quality of education, the types of stores available, grocery stores, things like that. When all of those are equalized, we're actually looking at, we're comparing apples to apples here. When it is equalized, homes in black neighborhoods are undervalued on average by $48,000. That is a loss of $156 billion in home value for millions of Americans, mostly African Americans, but also white Americans who live in majority black neighborhoods. Brookings looked at 113 different metropolitan areas that had at least one majority black neighborhood and compared home values in that majority black neighborhood to uh, home values outside of the majority black neighborhood. All of the purple, these are all purple, all of these purple areas are areas of devaluation. You can see them all over the, the, the eastern part of the country where majority black neighborhoods have lower home values than other neighborhoods that are otherwise equal. Why a federal fair housing investigation is reviewing MLGW's purchase of homes in North Memphis. Except for the service center belonging to the city-owned utility company, Memphis Light Gas and Water, every lot is now an empty field. Known as MLGW, the utility company declared its need for Ross's home and other properties it's since demolished. Ross held out for a year, but as the neighbors around her began to vanish and the utility company made reference, and the utility company made reference to legal action she sold in May 2017, walking away from her home of 40 years empty-handed. They only give us what they say our house was worth. No moving expenses, no nothing. It just knocked out my loan on my house, and then I had to come up with this loan on this house, Ross said of her new home in Fraser. I'm in more debt now than I was over there. The neighborhood sea change has been under review by the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. Given a complaint alleging discrimination filed in August 2017 by Janice Mundy, who lived one block from the demolished homes. 
Good livable homes are being torn down for old damaged equipments, Monday's complaint stated. Regarding Memphis Light Gas and Water's plans to close its 11.5 acre Central Shops complex on Bill Street and move its functions to the utility company's North Service Center across the street from where Ross and her family lived. African American residential areas are being torn down for convenience. This would not be allowed to happen if this were a white community with white residents, Monday charged. A few months later, Ross also found a complaint with HUD, which prompted federal investigators from Washington, D.C. to visit Memphis to interview her and other residents. Because Monday filed her complaint as a neighbor whose home was not sought for purchase, HUD found her complaint without cause. But Ross had been pressured to sell, she said, by Memphis Light Gas and Water's year-long mentions of legal action. HUD has therefore investigated Ross's complaint further. She's now hoping to hear from Mayor Strickland. His Memphis 3.0 plan upholds home ownership and growth in communities, Monday said, and she wants to know why what happened to her neighborhood was the opposite. An MLGW spokesperson said the agency would not comment on ongoing legal matters. To HUD, MLGW denied all claims of discrimination, according to the complaint report Monday shared with the Commercial Appeal. For her part, Ross holds out hope for HUD, still in disbelief over the sequence of events that she saw her family pressured to move, offered less for her home than the loan she owed on it, paid zero moving expenses, and forced to take on bigger bills and new debt to secure a new home. Until June of 2016, Ross lived next to MLGW, unsuspecting of what was to come. That's when MLGW said her property was needed in what will be a cash sale. Presently, we need additional space for parking and building sites to continue providing quality service to citizens of Memphis and Shelby County. A 2017 letter to Ross from a property manager for MLGW said, should we be unable to finalize the contract, I will have no choice but to forward this matter to our legal department. MLGW's offer to Ross was $17,900. She owed more than $20,000 on her house after the $13,000 room addition, yard renovation, and the cost of gaining custody of her grandchildren. You mean to tell me that I got to give up my property, no money, no expenses to move, I said. I owe more than that on this house. Then she said she was told she'd have to pay the difference between MLGW's offer and her outstanding loan. I said, you want to bet? You won't get it. I'll sit here. Sure will. Y'all don't want to pay me, she said, of an offer that would cover her full loan. You want me to pay you the extra money to give you all my property. What kind of game is that? The transaction with MLGW did ultimately include a $3,700 payoff credit to account for the balance she owed on her loan, but Ross is not appeased. As insult to injury, she says, her monthly MLGW utility bill is now much higher in the family's new Fraser home, as are the property taxes she pays on a fixed income. So this is just one example of how big corporations and the government will force people out of 
homes that they already are entitled to. This lady had been living in her home for 40 years with her children, grandchildren that she's had to take in, adopted kids, and now they had to move from a place that they knew as home with family all in the area that they can reach out to if needed just because MLGW wanted to expand and relocate some of their services. HUD proposal raises bar on housing discrimination complaints. The Department of Housing and Urban Development is moving to roll back an Obama-era policy aimed at rooting out racial bias in housing. The latest move by the Trump administration to weaken a legal tool combating unintentional discrimination. Under a new plan, HUD would raise the burden of proof they must meet to bring a claim, making it harder for civil rights groups and others to pursue housing discrimination cases. At issue is a long-standing legal precedent that allows plaintiffs to pursue claims based on statistical evidence that a lender or developer's policies have a disparate impact on minorities, rather than proof of explicit bias. The Obama administration in 2013 set out guidelines for bringing such cases against mortgage lenders, developers, and home insurers, alleging that their policies disadvantage minorities. Under the new plan, HUD would require plaintiffs to clear a five-part test to bring a fair housing case, including evidence that the alleged discriminatory practice is arbitrary, artificial, and unnecessary. HUD said the modifications would create clearer legal standards in line with the 2015 Supreme Court decision that upheld the concept of disparate impact in fair housing cases, but also said Plaintiffs should draw a causal relationship between their statistical analysis and a specific lending or hiring policy they seek to challenge. Consumer advocates worry the changes will make it harder to bring cases in court, which have consistently upheld the disparate impact doctrine, but tend to give deference to the government's interpretation of laws it enforces. HUD's plan basically is saying that you have to prove your entire case when you file it. This is unheard of. Lisa Rice, president and chief executive of the National Fair Housing Alliance, said in an interview. This is just another attempt by the Trump administration to take away yet another civil rights protection. During the 2017 fiscal year, HUD and its state and local partners received 8,186 fair housing complaints including 59% based on disability claims and 26% focused on race discrimination, according to the department's annual report. Between 1974 and 2013, 92 fair housing disparate impact claims were considered by the federal appeals court. Less than 20% of the cases were decided in favor of plaintiffs but lenders, developers, and other defendants in civil rights suits have criticized the disparate impact doctrine, which they say floods them with discrimination complaints. So for example, as in the last article that I covered with Janice Mundy being the person who was the first to file the claim, even though she wasn't directly affected, seems like Hood wants to roll back this decision to keep from getting cases like that, but in the grand scheme, we know that they just don't want to be responsible for 
discriminatory laws or practices. Well, we begin today's show in Detroit, where a showdown between grassroots activists and the city is shining a spotlight on racist housing policies that robbed African-Americans in Detroit of their homes and widened the wealth gap. On Thursday, with the support of Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, the Coalition for Property Tax Justice announced a class action lawsuit against the city of Detroit, Wayne County, and the state of Michigan in response to unfair property tax foreclosure. One in four Detroit properties have been subject to property tax foreclosure, a level comparable only to the foreclosure rates during the Great Depression. And according to legal experts, many of them were caused by illegally inflated property taxes that violated the state's own constitution. Even though Detroit tried to fix the problem in 2017, it's still overvaluing the lowest-priced homes. So, yeah, as we can hear in this news clip the government just tries to come up with all the ways that they can to keep black people from being in certain areas that they want even if they've been allowed to be there for 30 40 years before just like in the mlgw case they just found a way to to push them out and so these these people were illegally overtaxed which caused foreclosures on their homes and that's something that we talk about all the time if you get on a twitter feed or if you're in the right pockets of facebook it's always a discussion of oh are we gonna sell grandma's house y'all selling grandma's house and how a lot of people end up losing houses that are in their family because they can't keep up with the property taxes so now to hear that people are illegally being overtaxed so that they can lose their houses it, it brings a whole new perspective on this And since we're already talking about Detroit, the Detroit Free Press reports that low-income renters in Midtown could be forced out as assistance program ends. In less than a decade, the housing market in Midtown Detroit went from needing a jumpstart to needing ways to stop lower and moderate-income residents from getting priced out by rising rents. A unique cash assistance program aimed at helping those at-risk renters is winding down. That leaves some participants, such as Kakish Bembry, with tough decisions about whether they can still afford to live in Midtown, now one of, city's, now one of the city's hottest neighborhoods, or whether they need to relocate to a cheaper part of the city. My rent keeps increasing, but my income is not increasing that much, said Bembry, a healthcare worker. The Stay Midtown program started in fall 2016 to subsidize rents at more affordable levels for Midtown residents with below average incomes. The goal was to keep them from getting gentrified out of their homes. Nearly any existing resident who met the program's income guidelines could apply, although full-time students weren't eligible. But the program's 800,000 funding was enough for only three years and the rent subsidies up to 125 per month or 1500 a year are ending for many of the participating 150 households who were 88% black, 78% female, and with a median annual income of just under $24,000. The program was run by a civic group, Midtown Detroit Inc., which is now helping those households find longer term housing options as their subsidies expire.
The subsidies aim to lower participants' housing costs to 30% of their income, a level considered reasonable under federal guidelines. Even though some participants may need to move if they can't afford their apartment building's full market rate rents, the program gave them a period of rent relief and provided time to search for cheaper accommodations. Some people are going to choose to stay where they are at and just pay the higher rent. Other people are moving to more affordable options that are opening up in the neighborhood. And some people that maybe weren't employed have gotten jobs and now can afford the full rent. Stay Midtown launched shortly after the end of the larger Live Midtown program, a five-year program that gave cash incentives to encourage people to move to Midtown, an area north of downtown that includes the Cass Corridor. The LIVE program predated the revitalization boom in Midtown that made the area a destination for young professionals and has brought numerous new restaurants, cocktail bars, coffee shops, residential buildings, and retail stores. As the neighborhood became trendy and rents went up, Lewis Hickson, a manager at a Midtown Homeless Crisis Center, said he heard about some longtime Detroiters getting priced out. That's a common story in Midtown, said Hickson. We've had employees move and we've had some of our clients that we placed in various apartment buildings. They've been asked to leave in the building. They've been asked to leave the building in order to renovate it and then they raise the rents. In contrast to Stay Midtown, the earlier Live Midtown incentives aimed at new residents were only available to employees of Wayne State University, the Detroit Medical Center, or Henry Ford Health System. These incentives were $2,500 toward the first year's rent and $1,000 for the second year, or a $20,000 loan for a home purchase that was forgiven up to five years. The LIVE program had about 1,000 participants, and 40% were black, 30% were white, 20% were Asian, and 10% were Latino or another minority group. There was a similar LIVE program live downtown program for downtown employees and employers. Mosey said stay midtown was a response to the big jumps in rent as much as 8 to 14 percent per year that occurred about five or six years ago. Since then midtown landlords have slowed the increases to a more manageable two to five percent she said. Stay midtown was for existing midtown residents with incomes between 50% and 80% of the area median or $24,000 to $38,000 for a single person. Before the subsidies, its participants faced average rents of $822 per month. Many of the new higher-end residential buildings that have opened in Midtown and Downtown set aside 20% of their units as affordable apartments for tenants with below average incomes. Midtown Detroit Inc. is trying to place people into those apartments as the stay program subsidies expire. Mosey said about 300 affordable units are either currently available or under construction in Midtown and about 450 more have been proposed in projects that have yet to break ground. We feel like this is a pretty good, healthy number of affordable units coming into the neighborhood, she said. Mosey said some program participants also relocated to a new 54-unit affordable housing development in Brush Park for those 55 years or older, known as the Flats, where rents begin at $500 per month. 
the building opened last spring and was developed by Dan Gilbert's bedrock firm. Just over half of the state Midtown participants were over 50. So although, you know, this article started off a little shaky with people, you know, losing their assistance because the program ends, they have already started coming into solutions for the problem and making more units affordable for the people that will be displaced after their assistance ends. Atlanta to make all landlords accept housing vouchers. The Atlanta City Council approved a measure they say will prohibit discrimination against applicants who use federal vouchers for housing. The council approved the ordinance by a vote of 13 to 2 to ban landlords from rejecting vouchers as payment for affordable housing units. The effort to root out voucher discrimination comes as the nation struggles with a severe lack of affordable housing. In Georgia, there is a shortage of about 204,000 rental homes for families whose income falls at or below the poverty line. Landlord discrimination against vouchers is widespread and has exacerbated the affordable housing crisis. Atlanta would be the first local government in Georgia to pass a law prohibiting discrimination against housing applicants based on housing vouchers, according to the Poverty and Race Research Action Council, a Washington, D.C. nonprofit group. At least 80 cities, counties, and states have approved such measures, the Poverty and Race Group said, including Chicago, Memphis, New York, and states California, Oklahoma, and Utah. Supporters say that the law will help low-income Atlanta residents obtain affordable housing. It's unfortunate that there has been a stigma placed on people who have vouchers. The vast majority of people who have vouchers are working family, the disabled, and senior citizens. Landlords sometimes reject vouchers because of the flaws in the Federal Housing Choice Voucher Program, formerly known as Section 8. Any landlord's decision to reject an applicant is for legitimate business reasons based on the red tape and burdensome bureaucracy that exist in the program. For example, landlords have, been, have had problems with delays in property inspections conducted through the voucher program and restrictions on their ability to renew or cancel leases. These problems make it more expensive for apartment firms to operate in their communities. Many low-income applicants say they have to run into, run, run into racial discrimination and concerns by landlords that they won't get their money, which is a misguided opinion by landlords. With a regular market rate tenant, you're taking a chance that they may or may not pay their rent. With a voucher, there is some guarantee for the landlord that you will get paid. Families who use housing vouchers pay no more than 30% of their income toward the cost of an affordable housing unit. The rest is covered by the federal government. These last two articles highlight some black excellence in the affordable housing market. First up, we have Shaq and Queen Latifah set to open affordable housing in New Jersey. Buying back the block, something that has been praised and talked about in rap and hip hop recently. With rappers like Slim Thug taking to Instagram to show his construction company building affordable homes in the neighborhoods of Houston, to Killer Mike flipping homes and housing units in the Atlanta area. 
More recently, two people have taken those efforts to new heights, literally building massive affordable housing units in New Jersey and Colorado. Queen Latifah has chosen Newark as the location for a new homes. She's invested in the construction of a 16-unit building worth $14 million. The property will include 23 family townhomes, 16 additional smaller units, a fitness center, and a commercial space that will be rented to nonprofits. Shaq has invested in a project fit to house thousands of lower-income New Jersey residents to add to his portfolio of housing he had built in Denver. Back in 2002, Shaq inked a deal worth nearly $100 million in affordable housing. They're making major moves and motivating the youth with this one. Living in a building provided by Shaq or Queen Latifah will undoubtedly inspire and motivate the young inspire and motivate the youth living in and around these buildings for generations to come. And lastly, the New York Times reports how a health aide won her ex-client's $283 a month apartment. Their relationship started the way many do. Marguerite Valentin needed help and Eleonora De La O wanted a job. As a home health aide, Ms. De La O Warm glasses of milk, took trips to the doctor, and held Miss Valentin's hand when she could not fall asleep. Over a handful of years, the $15 an hour position grew into a friendship so close that strangers assumed they were mother and daughter. And that made all the difference in a court decision that is believed to be one of the first of its kind in New York and reflects a growing understanding of the role that health aides play in the lives of their employers. After a legal fight that lasted more than a year, Ms. De La O, 62, won the right to the rent control department where Ms. Valentin had lived for 60 years before she died. Ms. De La O said that she was stunned into silence by the ruling in early January. Then I realized how big this was. She said, I'm like someone who won the lottery. There are only about 22,000 rent control departments left in the city down from a peak of two million in the 1950s. Ms. De La O's success could have a wide effect on the fate of not only those units, but one million rent-stabilized apartments as well. Under New York state law, only an immediate family member who lives with the tenant can take over a rent-regulated apartment. Others have to prove they have the same intertwined relationship with the tenant that a spouse or child would have. A difficult legal hurdle to overcome and the reason many rent control departments have disappeared. But the decision in Ms. De La O's case recognized that home health aides can play a familiar role when they become live-in caregivers, confidants, and even financial managers. Other home aides have tried and failed to win similar cases. But Ms. De La O's case benefited from an open-minded judge and the sheer volume of evidence that the women's lives had become interwoven. This started in 2014 when Ms. Valentin broke her hip while walking into the Lincoln Center to see an opera. Friends found her help in Ms. De La O. Both women worship at Bay Ridge Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses but Ms. Valentin soon ran out of money to pay Ms. De La O and two other attendants. Ms. De La O agreed to move in, working for free at times, but saving money on rent. 
she slept on a sleeper sofa in the living room. Miss Valentin died in August 2018 at age 93, and Miss De La O said the landlord soon served her with an eviction notice. She went to the housing court in Brooklyn to fight the case. A judge directed her to seek help through the city's free tenant legal services. The program, known as the Right to Counsel, targets 20 neighborhoods where evictions are high in an effort to fight homelessness. Ms. De La O met Clonic Durenville, shout out to the house, a staff attorney at the nonprofit Camba Legal Services who was just three years out of law school. Mr. Durenville decided to patiently explain to Ms. De La O why she was unlikely to win her case. He went through eight legal standards she would have to meet in order to succeed. To his surprise, she met all of them. It was literally like she checked all of the boxes, said Mr. Durenville, 30. To prepare for his trial, Mr. Durenville enlarged photos of the two women at lunch and at home. He showed how Miss De La O had moved in years earlier, satisfying a two-year residency requirement. He collected bank statements showing that the women had mingled their finances. He presented documents showing Miss De La O had power of attorney and was the executor of Miss Valentin's will. Susan Hovden, who had been friends with Miss Valentin since the 1970s and a volunteer minister, also took the stand, showing that the women socialized and worshipped together two other points that help win secession rights. Sometimes the underdog gets their say and it works out, Ms. Hovden said. Ms. De La O cared for about 15 clients during her career as a home health aide and is getting closer to retirement, a prospect that she said now looks more likely with an affordable apartment. So shout out to my classmate, um, class of 2011 Morehouse student Clonic Durenville for such a groundbreaking case. Bravo, my friend. So proud of you. This is monumental. And I needed to shine some light on that. Not only black excellence, but people that I know that are exuding black excellence. So shout out to you. And that concludes this week's episode.